We're going to discuss tonight several chuvas, several chuvas dealing with a major question, one of the most heavily discussed questions in Choshen Mishpat that I've ever seen. It'll be easier to discuss what the case is by actually seeing one of these chuvas, but it is a major machlokas, both in halacha, a very practical halacha, as well as it says some interesting things about the <clears throat> the philosophy of halacha of Choshen Mishpat, a, the principles involved have ramification in other situations as well. The case, the, the first tshuva we're going to discuss is the tshuva that kicked off this whole debate. That is a tshuva in the Sefer Pnei Moshe. Sefer Pnei Moshe was written by Rabbi Moshe Benvenisti. He was a member of the illustrious Benvenisti family. The Knesset Dola was Chaim Benvenisti. The the Tarot Mima, I think, discusses, has a fanciful explanation of the name Benvenisti in one of his farm. But whatever, whatever the name means, it was a, it was a very illustrious Sephardic rabbinic family. There are a number of Gedoli Torah of this family. So the Pnei Moshe, Pnei Moshe is not a figure who is that well known outside of Halacha. I looked at Wikipedia before. The, the Benvenisti family has a page. I, I couldn't find a specific page for Moshe Benvenisti. Be that as it may, his, he was in the 17th century. The, the various volumes of his Sefer were published in, in the you know, late, late 17th century. He was, a mid, mid to, he was a mid to late 17th century Sephardic figure. A, uh, very, uh, according to Hebrew book, 1606 to 1670, 1677. And his, his works were uh, bread and butter, were, were halachic classics. Uh, as with many of the Sephardic poskim, his, uh, much, of his, much of his most interesting work was on Choshen Mishpat and Avon Ezer. And the tshuva we're going to see tonight is in, is in what is in volume two, two out of three of his Pnei Moshe. The case is as follows. Yaakov, a pseudonym presumably, Yaakov died. His heirs, his children, he had one son, one daughter. And his estate included chanuyas, literally shops. These were often banking concessions, licenses to run banking operations. But they included some type of asset, some type of valuable commercial asset. Ukufini the rules of the Muslims, the Ramosha Benvenisti was, was in Turkey. According to the rules of the, of the Muslims, the, the, legal, the, the legal inheritance framework of Muslims, the rule is, when it, At least when it comes to Chanuyos, I, I'm not so familiar, I didn't get the chance to research Islamic law in general. We discussed this previous week. Last week we discussed the question of Islamic law about the about the, the Al-Kibla when you shecht. We'll, we'll get back to that in a, uh, in a future share. I also plan to discuss in a future share another halacha I saw about shechita, another discussion whether you're allowed to say Allah Akbar before you shecht, which is apparently something that Muslims do. They say Bismillah, Allah Akbar, and so on, in the name of Allah, Allah the, the Mighty, the Merciful. We'll discuss that as well. But tonight we're doing Chosher Mishpat. So in Islamic law, at least when it comes to chanuyos, when it comes to these shops, these, these, uh, these businesses. So girls and boys inherit shava b'shava. That, of course, is not the Din Torah, as he's going to discuss uh, as we go on to the tshuva. But in Islamic law, Islamic law was more progressive here. The egalitarianism, women and men inherit equally. 
Therefore, when Yaakov died, so these chanuyos, these these shops, they were they they, they were they were registered. There was some type of official government registry, similar to what we have with 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 homes, with uh, with cars, with corporations, businesses, and so on. So these shops had to be registered as as their ownership had transferred. He talks about the Pincas Ha Motiuli, some type of uh, governmental body or agency. So they were written down, they were duly uh, recorded as now belonging to Reuven ben Yaakov Aniskar, Vedina bas Yaakov Aniskar. So Reuven had two children, so, the, so this organ of Islamic government had duly recorded that the Chanuyos are now owned jointly by the two, the two children of the deceased, Reuven and Dina. In an antical, again, some other technical term. So, the, so these, these assets were now recorded as being jointly owned by, 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 ya, by Ruvain and his, and his sister Dina. Now, Ruvain went ahead and it was Tovea, he sued his sister Dina in according to Allah in Basin. And he said, and he sued his sister and his brother in law, Shimon, who was Dina's husband. He said, please sign over to me, please formally, legally relinquish. Any, any interest that you may have, that the courts may have given you in these shops, Be, uh, please write a pirgit, which apparently is some kind of document uh, waiving all, all right, all ownership to these assets. So please, uh, please, please do so, and allow them to be recorded under my name, because you and I both know, he said, that according to the law of our holy Torah, Alpitor Torah, girls do not inherit when there are sons. So, okay, so Dina and her husband Shimon, they, they responded to Reuven. It's true, you're certainly right that according to Din Torah, boys inherit, girls do not inherit when, when they have brothers. However, we do have the right, we do have a halachic right to keep half these assets, because why? Dina and Malchus Dina. The principle we've discussed many times, the Gemara says in a number of places, Dina de Malchus Dina, the law of the king, the law of the government is recognized by halacha as valid, and they quoted a psaq from a rabbinic figure named Rabbi Yirmiya Morganato, that he said that when it comes to Yerusha, when, even when it, when it comes to inheritance, we follow the law of the land, Dina de Malchus Dina, and therefore, according to this ruling of this Rabbi Yirmiya, she is entitled to these assets, because since the law grants them to her, she's entitled to follow this because of Dina de Malchus Dina. That is the, the key part of the tshuva, at, at, which is relevant to us, the, the actual story was a little more complicated. What happened was, when, when Ruvain saw that his sister was intransigent, and she claimed she was following this, this ruling of this Rabbi Yirmiya, he, in desperation, he agreed to submit the matter to arbitration, to, to, to a panel of arbitrators, who, Jewish arbitrators, apparently, who would resolve the matter. They awarded him most of the assets, but they gave a portion of one of the chanuyos they gave to the girl, the, the woman. He then decided he, that, that, that he didn't want to follow this pshara. He said, the pshara was forced upon me because she wasn't listening to Dintara, and I had no choice, so I, I, I thought half a loaf was better than none, but now that I have recourse in Bastin, I want to have this pshara overturned. So we're not going to get into the, that aspect of the question, the question of overturning a pshara, a question of being forced to make a pshara, a question of pshara betos, a pshara that was made uh, based on misconceptions. That's actually the, the overall framework of his tshuva, we're not going to get into those questions. We're just going to discuss the fundamental question, the pair of questions here. A, is Israel Yirmiya correct? Do we indeed follow secular law 
when it comes to Yerusha, non-Jewish law when it comes to Yerusha. For example, modern law as well treats women and men equally, and, and a, a woman has... There are, many, there are many areas in which modern law is different from the, the Torah's law of Yerusha, but certainly one of the most uh, obvious, one of the most front and center is the fact that the Torah treats men and women very differently, and the law does not. So that is... That's one issue. Do we really follow Dina Malchusa in such a context or not? B, assuming we do not, insofar as these properties are recorded in, in halfway in the name of the, of the woman, does she, do, would we force her to sign away her rights? You know, if we assume that Dina Malchusa Dina does not apply, and Alpidin, the property, belongs to the brother, can we force her to take the, the positive, concrete step of signing a waiver, relinquishing her rights to these properties. So those are the two key questions that are discussed in the Shuvah of the Premosha. Again, he has other questions as well, but for our purposes, these are the two critical questions that his Shuvah deals with. So he says that, first of all, he says, this Psach of Rebiermia, he says, Rebiermia, he says, was utterly rejected. He says, and whoever this Rebiermia was, I'm not sure who he was, but whoever he was, kol chach kol so all the Chacham disagreed. He was, he, he was completely uh, rejected. The, the virtually unanimous consensus was not like him. This psak is utterly incorrect, is utterly wrong, he says. And basically nobody agrees to this ruling of Rabbi Yirmiya. That is indeed the general consensus of later postkim as well, earlier and later postkim. Virtually all postkim agree that we do not follow Din Melchusadina when it comes to Yerusha. We're not talking about wills now. There are other questions that are more complicated. But again, in the absence of any will, a person dies in testate. The, the law says Yerusha shall be divided as follows. Halacha says it shall be divided differently. Virtually all posts can agree that we follow, that we follow the, the halacha, not the law. At the end of the tshuva, I don't have this from the handouts, at the end of the tshuva, he writes that even though Rabbi Yirmiya says that we followed Yimlach Usadina, it's kol ha'olam, cholku alav, everyone disagrees with him, machale again, mea uchli ba'uchla, and therefore he says that this sheet is completely rejected, it has no, it has no normative weight in halacha. We previously discussed the tshuva of the Rashba who makes this point, I believe we discussed the Rashba who says that the Rashba has fiery, vehement language about those who those who abandon the Torah and follow the laws of the, of the Gentiles, and, and it's a terrible thing, it's a chil Hashem, it's lifting a hand against the Torah's Moshe. Why exactly the Rashba feels so strongly about Yerusha in particular is a good question, but the, the bottom line is this, is, this is a virtual consensus. Virtually everyone, except this one opinion of this Rabbi Yirmiya, virtually all posts can agree that we do not follow Dina Melchusadina when it comes to Yerusha. Therefore, again, if a man dies intestate, the, then the property fall, the property is entirely inherited by his son. In, uh, in my case, if, in, insofar as I would die without a will, so, so my assets would go entirely to my son, and none of them would go to my little daughter. Which is why many posts can recommend that a person should write a will. But that's a topic for a different day. So... The second question discussed by the Pnei Moshe, and this is the really interesting aspect of his tshuva, is, okay, so we've established that we do not follow Dina Malchus Adina, we, we, we follow the Torah's laws of Yerusha, and the woman, the female heirs, are not entitled to anything, even though the law granted them some rights, some title to the, some partial title in the assets, 
they are not entitled to take the assets. The assets are viewed in halacha as the property of their brothers. Okay, but the brother now needs to get his name on the title. And without that, he'll be limited in what he's able to do. He can't get a mortgage and so on. So, so, so without his name on the title, he'll be limited in his ability to enjoy the assets. So he tells the, his sister, as in this case, Ruvain tells his sister Dina, please sign this pergut, this necessary paperwork, so I can be able to have clear control, clear title to these assets. Does she have to do that? Says the Premosha, he quotes a psaq from Rebichil Basan, a very distinguished posik among the early Sfardim. He quotes a psaq of Rebichil Basan, even though he disagreed, of course, with Rebirmiya, everyone disagreed with Rebirmiya, even though he held, we don't follow Dina Melchusadina, he says. That's true. Nevertheless, the Pleimosha says, Rebichil Basan held that they do not have to sign any documents waiving their right. In other words, it, it, it's, it's a subtle distinction, but, it, but it, it's, a, it's a crucial legal halachic distinction. They have no right to take the property, they have no right to use it, they have no right to actively deprive the true owners, their, their brothers, of the use of the property. But if, but if the brothers want them to sign, they do not have to do that. They, uh, they, they, they do not have to do that. He says, if they, if they want to, they have to, they, they, they have to pay off the sisters. They have to pay off their sisters, they have to settle with them. They'll say, look, we need your signature. Uh, how much is it worth? We'll, 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 give, you, we'll give you something. Later, posts can say the minig was they used to pay them 10% of the value of the assets for their signature. It could be a lot of money. If it's a million-dollar house, for example, the minig was, some posts can say that, uh, and the house was put uh, 50% in, uh, in, uh, in, in both their names, and al the, the brother is entitled to all of it, and he wants a sister to sign away her chalik, she can say, fine, pay me 10%. I think it's 10% of the whole value of the asset. It might be 10% of her chalik, but I think it's 10% of the whole value of the asset. It's a lot of money. So that, is the, that was the position of Rabbi Chiel Basan. Now, the Pneumosha goes on, and he says that the Marit disagrees. The Marit disagreed, and he said that, nope, that since Alpi Halacha, the woman is not entitled to these assets, she is mechuyeves, she's obligated to sign away, to write, to sign this pirga, to sign this waiver, this release, for free. Chinam ein kasef, why? Hashem It's not her property, Halacha clearly rules, unlike this minority, this outlier opinion of Rabbi Yirmiya, Halacha clearly rules that we do not say Dina Melchusadina in this context, and therefore the property belongs to her brother. So, signing it away, he's simply a She's simply enabling her brother to access property, which is his, Alpidin. So she's simply being Meshav Aveda. If I find your lost wallet, I can't say, I recognize the wallet is yours, but if you want it back, please, uh, give me a, please, please give me 10% of the contents. That's called stealing. You can't do that. You, you can't charge for a Shosavedah. You can't charge a percentage of the assets for a Shosavedah. So here too, insofar as we agree, insofar as we agree that the assets belong to the brother, the sister has no right to charge for signing them away. That's simply a Shosavedah. And therefore, this, was a ma- this is a major machlokis between... The Rebichil Basan and the Marit, both of them were early uh, eminent Svardik Poskim. They disagreed as to whether the sister can be compelled to sign away her share, Chinam and Kasef, for free, or whether she has the right to say, Look, I respect Halacha, I will not attempt to secure the property for myself. However, if you need paperwork for me, you need something for me, it's going to cost you. I have the right to charge for it. You have no right to demand that I sign papers for you. 
if you need my papers, I have the right to charge you for those papers. And he can charge, perhaps, any arbitrary amount he can, that, that he can negotiate with her. Or 10%, as some posts can say. So this is a major, major machlokus between Rabbi Chil Basan and the Marit. Later postgim, by and large, sign side with Rabbi Chil Basan. I did not have a chance to survey all the postgim. As I said, this is a very heavily discussed question. It's discussed at length by numerous postgim. As I recall, the, the dominant view of the Minhag actually is with Rebichiel Basan that the daughters do have the right to charge for their signature, even if they cannot keep the property for themselves. They do not have the right to charge. They, they, they do have the right. They, they can't keep the property, but they do have the right to charge for charge for the property. Now there are all kinds of arguments Post can bring as to why or why not. Why should they be allowed to charge? Why shouldn't they be allowed to charge? So I want to discuss one of these, uh, one of these, uh, one of the arguments, one of the issues that are hotly debated by the postkim, and that is based on a somewhat uh, obscure, somewhat uh, convoluted discussion of the Gemara in Bavakama. The actual case of the Gemara involves the classic my ox that gored your ox, the, the short tam that, uh, that the short tam that, that damaged another ox. The Gemara itself is rather complicated. It involves a fair amount of background in the laws of, of Nezek and of Keren and of Shartam. So we're not going to get into all the details of the Gemara there. We're just going to try to pull one line out somewhat out of context, but uh, try, try to explain it uh, accurately enough without the whole context. The Gemara says that the case the Gemara is discussing is somebody gave his ox, gave custody of his ox to a shomer, to a custodian, to watch. The shomer, uh, while it was in the possession of the shomer, the ox went out and caused damage. And the basic question, the Gemara is going back and forth, back and forth on the question of whether the shomer is liable, the show, whether the shomer is liable for the ox causing damage. And, and the part, part of the question is that the, that, that the owner of the ox that the borrower, that, that, not the borrower, that the custodian of the ox can tell, the, or the borrower of the ox can tell, the, it was a borrower in the case of the Gemara, a borrower is considered a kind of custodian, that the borrower can tell the... That the, 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 the Gemara is talking about a case where the, where, where the borrower did not, did not realize that it was a Sharmuad. A Sharmuad and a Shartam have different dinim. A Shar that does not yet have a, a record, a, a pattern of, of uh, causing injuries is called a Shartam, Ashar, once it gets, uh, once it develops a pattern of having, of having caused damage two or three times, becomes a muad, and uh, three times becomes a muad, and then it's chay of nezek shalim. The, the halach has changed, the, the liability increases. One of the distinctions between shartam and sharmuad is whether there's a general obligation upon the owner of the ox to pay out of pocket, which is usually the case for most types of torts, for most types of nezek, the, the person responsible pays out of pocket. A, a short time, an ox that does not yet have a, uh, a reputation of causing, of causing trouble is not mishtalim out of pocket. It's only mishtalim migufo, that there's a lien the victim has on the ox itself, but he has no recourse against the other assets of the, of, of the responsible party, of the owner of the ox. That's some basic background to the Gemara. So at one point in the, in the discussion between the borrower and the owner, the Gemara says, well, we're talking about a case where a borrower borrowed an ox not knowing it was a muad, he thought it was a tam. So the question is that the, the owner tells him, well, okay, you didn't know it was a, it was a muad, but you should have taken care of it anyway. That, that, maybe you can say he didn't know it was so, so violent, the Gemara discusses that. 
but the the Gemara is going through this debate as to whether the what 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 argument what claim can the borrower make that that he can say I thought it was a tam so I would have acted differently. So again, it's a complicated Gemara that that, that I didn't explain it that well. It, it's a somewhat difficult Gemara, but the, but the Gemara is discussing what various claims the borrower can make, can plead against the owner, why he shouldn't be responsible for not taking care of the axe. So the at one point, the Gemara makes the, the, the following uh, rather provocative statement. It says that the borrower can tell the owner, I thought it was a tam. If it's a tam, then there's no recourse against the general assets of the responsible party, only a lien against the ox itself. So I had a solution. If my ox caused damage, if the ox caused damage, what I would have done is I would have hidden the ox. I would have smuggled it away and hidden it somewhere where nobody will find it. And therefore, there'll be no recourse by the no recourse for the for the victim. Now that it's a sharmuad, doesn't matter if I hide the ox because all, all our all our assets are all our assets are responsible. Therefore, by not telling me it was a muad, you affected my ability to protect my interest. By had it been a tam, I had a plan. My plan was that if it causes any damage, I can hide the ox and then I, I won't be on the hook for it. Now that it's a muad, I have no such option. That is a claim that the borrower can make to the owner of the ox. Basically, he's saying, he sounds like he's saying, I would have behaved dishonestly. Had it been a tam, I would have, I would have, quickly, uh, I would have quickly hidden the ox out of the reach of the, of the plaintiff's hands, and I would have gotten away with it. So Tosa says, really? That's a claim you can make in Basin? You can get up in Basin and tell Basin my, my claim is, my position is, I would have hidden the ox and stolen it from the, from the, from the, plaint, from the plaintiff, from the victim? Are you allowed to do that? Tosus says, what kind of time is that? It's Shalok Adin. Tosus has two terutzim. We're not going to get into the first terutz. Tosus' second terutz is, you're right. Hiding the ox is Shalok Adin. However, the mere fact that the, that the victim, the plaintiff, knows that if he pushes hard against the defendant, against the negligent party, the negligent party might be tempted to hide the ox, he knows that it might be in his interest to settle this case as fast as possible. He knows that if it, he, 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 he doesn't know, but, but he's, he, he, has, he has to be concerned that if this case goes to trial, so to speak, if, if this case is not resolved, then the, then the mazik, the, the, the shomer, will be tempted to hide the ox. Therefore, he would offer, he, he would be quick to offer a settlement less than the, I'll take less than 100 cents on the dollar, because he knows in the back of his mind that the, or the front of his mind, he knows that the defendant may be tempted to steal the ox away and hide it, and he'll get away with it, because there's no, there's no liability from his uh, assets in general. So Tosus seems to be saying that the, a person, Tosus and his kasha assume that how can a person get up in basin and say he'll do it Shiloh din? His terrence is, he can do that and force a settlement. The fact that he can do that, even though it's Shiloh din. That, that, that means he can use it as leverage to obtain a favorable settlement from the, from the plaintiff. Says the Truman Sedation, really? Is, is that really what Tosis is saying? Does Tosis really mean that a person is allowed, that a defendant in a court case is allowed to threaten, basically to bury his opponents in lawyers, threaten to, to, to delay and deflect and, to, uh, and even to, to hide assets and engage in all kinds of shenanigans, is he really allowed to do that? Even if his purpose is not actually to steal, it's just, it's just to put pressure on the other side to settle. Are you allowed to do that? Are you allowed to just uh, be dishonest and threaten to be dishonest and hide things and break the rules? 
in order in order to force a settlement that you're not entitled to from the from the other party, is that what your the true says? Of course not. He says, he says you're certainly not allowed to do that. Pshita upshita shari ki agavna. It is absolutely obvious. He says it is is beyond obvious that uh, that that there's no way to do that. You're not allowed to threaten to steal in order to extract a settlement. That, that, that's Rishus, he says. You certainly can't do that. Certainly, a Yare Shemayim is not allowed to do this. He brings a Gemara in Masecha Shvuos. It says that the, my father often refers to this Gemara. The Gemara says, Midvar Shekhar Terchak, you're not allowed to lie. That doesn't just mean you can't tell an outright lie. You can't even engage in uh, misleading conduct and, and in ways that will force somebody to settle with you. You can't, even, you can't even have people lie and present themselves as witnesses, even if you're actually entitled to the money. If you're breaking the formal rules of procedure, even if you're entitled to the money, that, uh, that, uh, that you still can't do it. He says, Kolshkin, the Kolshkin, he says, you can't, you can't engage in what he calls machshivos oven and fraud, fraudulent and deceptive plans, valkalkalos, to, to force somebody to settle with you, to, to, to threaten to steal and to, and to, and to stonewall, to, to do such things, to, to, to block him from collecting his money, to do all that, to get him to, to, get him to, to sell with you. He says, of course he can't do that, he says. He says that you have no claim to the money. He says, uh, he, he says, that's he says, it's us, sir. He says, you certainly can't do this. He says, threatening to engage in improper behavior, in illegal, improper, dishonest behavior, in order to extract a favorable settlement is absolutely usher, the Truma Sedeshin says. So what does Tosus mean? Tosus says that the Tosus says that, that, that the borrower can say, I would have hidden the cow, I would have hidden the ox. What do you mean you would have hidden the ox? That's called stealing. Even if you're only doing it, you're only threatening to do it to, to bring him to the table and get him to settle with you, that's still called stealing. You can't do that. So the Truma Sedeshin struggles with this question. He offers a couple of alternative explanations of Tosus. Again, we're not going to get into the first one, he says, but the second one, he says, is very interesting. He says, what Tosin means is as follows. You're not allowed to actually threaten to engage in dishonest, uh, fraudulent, uh, improper behavior or coin telach. You're certainly not allowed to do that. What Tosin means is, you're not going to do anything. You're just going to sit there and say, let's discuss this. When he comes to the table, he may come on his own and offer you a settlement because he doesn't know that you're an honest guy. He knows that, unfortunately, some people are not so honest. So he, know, so he, 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 he doesn't want to get involved with somebody who he knows might not, be, might not be honest. Somebody might try to cheat him. So he's gonna, you're not going to do anything. You're just going to look at him and say, can we discuss this? And he's going to say, okay, here's the settlement. And he's not going to first try to feel you out. Are you honest? Are you Erlich? He's just going to say, look, I want to put this whole thing behind me. If you give me 50 cents on the dollar, we'll call it a day. The reason he's being so nice is because he knows that some people are not going to be honest. That's what Tosus means. Tosus says, of course you're not allowed to threaten dishonest behavior. Of course you're not allowed to say that you're going to steal. To, of course you're not allowed to actually steal, to, to hide assets, to do things like this in order to enforce a settlement. But what you are allowed to do is to accept a settlement on the grounds that on the, even though it's being offered to you because he's concerned that you might not be so honest, you ought to accept the settlement. That's what Tosis means. That a person who, who is in a position to be dishonest, and because of that, someone offers him 
something in order to forestall that possibility of dishonesty, you're allowed to accept such a settlement, even though it's only being offered because he suspects you of possibly behaving dishonestly, as long as you're not actually threatening to do so, you're not actively giving that impression, the mere fact that he offers a settlement because he's worried that you might behave dishonestly, that's enough of a... That, 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 that's permitted, you're allowed to accept such an offer. Shulchan Aruch basically passes like this through a sedation. Shulchan Aruch says, if someone sues you for money, you're not allowed to mavakesh tzadim. You're not allowed to find methods to, uh, to avoid paying in order to get them to settle and be mafasher and offer, and offer part of, and, and, and offer to write off part of the obligation. You're not allowed to do that. This is, this is what they say uh, you know, big companies will sometimes do. They say that they will try to, at least, at least that's what the cynics say, they'll, they'll try to bury you in lawyers. They, they know they're liable, but they know that they can afford to bankroll litigation for six months or for three years, and they can throw hundreds of thousands of dollars at the, at the case, and you can't. And, then, and, when, and when they do discovery, they'll give you uh, 100, uh, 100 cartons, 100 bankers' boxes of papers. You can't afford to go through it. So, so they, they know, they, they hope that, 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 you'll, that, that you won't have the stomach for this and you'll settle for less than it's worth. So again, I, you know, obviously the world is a complicated place. I'm not accusing anyone of doing that, but the halacha is you are not allowed to evacuate tzadim. You're not allowed to find reasons to avoid paying money that it's clear that you owe. Again, in, in, many, in, in many litigations, it's not so clear you owe the money. Reasonable people can disagree. It's not always so black and white. In, uh, in fiction, it's often black and white. In John Grisham novels, it's, uh, it's often black and white. In the real world, it's... Uh, it's generally, not always, but it's generally some form of gray. And if it's gray, then you can certainly fight it. But in a case where the halacha is clear, and you just want to take advantage of tachbulos and studim and different types of delaying and obfuscation tactics and uh, manipulative tactics to force him to settle, you're not allowed to do that. That's the chumrah of the Truma Sedashin. However, the kula is that you are allowed to accept a settlement that's being offered because of a concern that you'll behave that way, that's not a problem of... Uh, that doesn't constitute any kind of sheker. Accepting the settlement, you, you don't have to tell him, look, you, you don't really have to offer a settlement. I'm, an, I'm, I'm a Yerei Shemayim, I'm Erlich, I would never do this. Even if that's true, you don't have to say that. If he offers you a settlement, you're allowed to take it, even though it's only due to a concern that you may behave dishonestly, you wouldn't be allowed to behave that way, but you are allowed to accept the settlement, which is offered out of a concern that you may behave dishonestly. Based on this Truma Sedeshen, the Shaolom the Shaolom or Yosef Shaol Nathanson, one of the most prolific authors of Chuvos in the 19th century, he also defends the position of Rabbi Chiel Basan that the, the women are not obligated to sign away their inheritance, that they can't take the inheritance because it's not theirs, but they're not obligated to execute paperwork that will enable their brothers to enjoy the property unless they get paid for it. And his argument is based on this Jewish edition. The Sholem Eshev says that he says, we have, we have this Prey Moshe, he says he, in, in, he has several chuvas, and the one in the handout, he, he refers to a longer chuva that he has, uh, that, that he, which he discusses this question. He says, I brought a raya to the Rebichil Basan, to the position that the, that the girls are allowed to charge for their paperwork from Tosus. He says, Tosus says that you're allowed to accept the settlement based on the possibility that you may act Shalokadin. Even though the Truma Sedeshen and the Marshal, they say that Tosus, uh, that, 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 that Tosus can't mean, can't mean what he says, that, that, that they, that you're not allowed to threaten, you're not allowed to threaten something to, in, in order to obtain, 
in order to obtain a settlement. So the girls would not be allowed, it would, it would seem that the girls should not be allowed to threaten, to threaten to say, look, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't give us money, we're going to take the property for ourselves. Even if their plan is only to extract a settlement, you're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to threaten to behave dishonestly, to, uh, you're not allowed to threaten to behave dishonestly in order to extract a settlement. However, here, they're not threatening to behave dishonestly. They're just saying, we are 100% honest. We are not going to take this property. We recognize fully that it belongs to you. We will not step foot on the property. However, if you need our signature, you are going to have to pay us for that. That, the, the, the Shalom Ejiv says, that's Muskim Lakuli Alma. Tosus seems to go even further and say that you're even allowed, the, the, the simple reading of Tosus is that you're even allowed to go further. You're even allowed to threaten to do something Shalokadin to extract a settlement. But even if we don't accept that, he says... We, we, even if we don't go that far, the basic din that you are allowed to say, look, I'm not going to do anything dishonest, but I have something you need, my signature, my signature is mine, I, I, I can grant it and withhold it as I please, and if you want me to sign, the Shalom Eshev says, the din is MS, like Rebichil Basan, that you have the right to not take the property, but you have the right to withhold your signature in, and, and, to, and to charge a price for it, that you're allowed to do. In this true... I'm sorry? Can you charge? Can you charge more than what is offered? If they offer you ten cents on the dollar, and you think the fair the fair amount is twenty five cents or thirty cents, then can you charge more? Because this is what you this is what you think is fair. Right. So that's that's a good question. How much are you allowed to charge? So many of the early post game did not give any kind of rule. They just said you have the right to charge. You 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 have to you have to sit down at the negotiating table. And whatever, whatever, that's how negotiations work. Each side has to figure out how hard he can push the other side. And uh, it's one of those cases that if they, don't, if they don't reach a conclusion, both sides suffer. The, if, they don't, if they don't reach a deal, then the girls get nothing and the boys can't use the property. So it's like a lot of negotiations are like that. But both parties know that it's to both their advantage to get a, to reach some kind of deal. But how much the, who has more leverage, who has, that depends partly on, on who's going to get more out of it. It depends partly on who has tougher nerves and partly on their negotiating skills. So the early posts can make it sound like that's what it boils down to. It's, it's a simple, they, they have, the girls have the right to withhold their signature and they can grant it or withhold it as they please and they could ask for whatever they want. Later post Kim, Tzitzel Ezra, I believe, has a long chuva about this, more than one maybe, where he says the minog is that they get to charge 10%. I'm not really sure where that comes from unless it's a uh, takano or a minog that developed like this. The later poskim do sometimes work with this share of 10%, but the early poskim just seem to say it's simply their right to withhold their signature, and when they let, they can reach whatever, whatever agreement they please, whatever, they, whatever, whatever terms they please. But with regard to the other situation you dealt with, where the, where the where corporation can, um, can have the leverage of uh, uh, swamping you with, uh, with things that you cannot afford to deal with, and they will only deal with you only because they want to expedite the resolution that, uh, uh, that they, otherwise, uh, they otherwise need and if you don't cooperate. So in that case, what is your leverage if you, um, if you don't have, as in the case of the, uh, the Yerusha, you have the opportunity of saying, Can I, you, you want access property, I have to sign up on it. So what is your leverage? Another situation outside of the Yerusha, where uh, you want to also have what you think is the fair 
compensation. So in, 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 the case, in the case of the corporations, you're right. The, 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 the less deep-pocketed opponent of the corporations may very well have little or no leverage. The point is that al it would be usher for, as I understand it, it would be usher for the deeper-pocketed litigant to deliberately refuse to pay a claim that they in, in, internally admit that they owe simply to force a settlement. It's usher. If we can't, uh, if we can't prove it... Again, so if Baston saw they were doing that, if Baston saw that, that, that there was a litigant who was simply making trouble for no reason, Baston would presumably step in and say, you can't do this. However, if they could claim that in good faith, uh, if they could claim that in good faith uh, they think they have a claim, their lawyers tell them it's not so simple, then usually that's what happens. It's very rare, I think, that, that, that a litigant will say, we know we have no claim, we're just trying to make life miserable for the other party. But if, if, if Baston sees that that's what's happening, Baston might step in and put a stop to it. For example... Outside the banking situation, which is where the vast majority of cases that people involved financially uh, go, what, what resort do they have? If their attorney says, <coughs> you need to play uh, hardball the same way that the other side is playing, uh, it's not banking that's involved. So what, what resort do they do? What resort do you have if you're not dealing I mean, if, if, if you're dealing with courts, assuming there's a heter in this case for you to be involved in court, if one or both sides are not listening to, to, to if one other side is not listening to the entire, if there's a heter to be in court, then in court you probably have to follow the rules of the court. So that you, you, then, then you have whatever rules the, the courts give in such a case. Anyway, so the, 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 the Shoal Ameshev, in the Tshuva I have in the handout, he brings up this case of the daughters refusing to sign in a, actually in a different context. He has a very interesting question. He says, somebody wanted to make a brew house, which I think is an industrial facility for what it sounds like, for brewing, uh, brewing beer. So he needs, this is a, he, needs some kind of, he needs some kind of variance. He needs permission from the neighbors to allow him to do this. The, the government will not allow him to do this unless the neighbors sign off and say, we're okay with this. I, I, maybe maybe variance is not exactly the right word, but uh, roughly he needs some he needs some kind of uh, variance. He needs some kind of uh, signing off by the neighbors. And one of the neighbors says that. What, so 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 one one of the neighbors says that I will sign. I'm willing to I'm willing to give you my my willing to give my consent, but I want. A quid pro quo, if your brew house is matzliach, I, w- I want you to pay me something for this. So I'm only going to allow you to do this if you, uh, if you, agree, if you agree to compensate me for, for signing away my rights to object. So the question is, does he have the right to do that? In his case, it was already after the fact. He had already made this deal. The question is, could based enforce the brew house operator to, uh, to honor it? Or do we say, no, he had no right to do that. He had no right to withhold his signature because it's zenen of zelo chaser. It's kofen amidas dom. He says, we, why, why, why would he care? Just because he wants to extort money. Similar to the case of the daughters in the, similar to the case of the daughters in the Pneumosha. They're going to say, we're not going to sign unless you pay us. Why? Why do they care about signing? What's in it? They, they can't have, the property's not theirs anyway. All they want to do is to, uh, is to monetize, as we would say, to monetize their signature. Here also, he just wants to monetize his right to object to, uh, by, by asking for money. You're not allowed to do that. Kofin will meet us down. Hashanah we saw was the way the Marit referred to it. So that was the question. Do the neighbors have the right to charge for signing away their rights or not?
says the says the Shalomeshev's correspondent that he says, no, actually, it's not Midas Tov. The neighbors have, the neighbors would be entirely reasonable if they would decide not to sign. It's, it's not just a, a formal signature. They have, they have very good grounds to object to this facility. He says, why? This brew house, whatever it is, fires can start at night. And uh, so, so, so first of all, it's not Midas Tov. They, they, they have a legitimate concern. If they want to, if they want to uh, give up their right to object, that's fine, but they can charge for that. If I have the right, if, if there's a real fire hazard here, and I have to accept that risk, I can certainly charge for that if I want. That's fine. Furthermore, the, the Shalom Eshav's correspondent said, even if they would have no reason to object, it's purely a formality, there, there's no real reason, for, there's no reasonable concern that they have. But the law gives them the right to object. So would they have the right to monetize that? Would they have the right to ask, to ask for money? So the, the Shalom Eshav's correspondent said, he heard from Eze Gedolim, he heard that some Rabbanim Paskin, that a, a woman who doesn't want to sign away her rights to property that she inherits according to the law, that uh, he says that, he heard some post can say that we force them to do it, uh, that we force them to do, that, that, that we don't force them to do, we, we, we heard that some post can say, that they have the right to charge, that the, that the sons have to pay them. So basically the, the, the other Rav said, that he had two reasons to say that, that the neighbor has the right to, to charge for his signature. First of all, of course, there's real risk. So it's not Midas Dome. There's a very real risk here. If he wants to forfeit his right, if he wants, to, if he wants him to give up his right to object to the, this uh, somewhat hazardous uh, operation next door, he can certainly charge for that. B, even if there's no risk, just like the daughter has the right to charge for her signature, maybe here too the, the neighbor has the right to charge for his signature. Says the Shaul Meshiv, Zemes. This other of apparently didn't know the Sugi, didn't, didn't know the details. He said, Is this true? Is this what Postkim say about the is this what Postkim say about the the daughters? Says the Shaul Meshiv, yes, it is MS. You can find it in the Pneumosha. And I myself, as we mentioned earlier, write about wrote about it in the context of the Tosis and Babakama about getting settlements based on the concern of the other party, they're going to actually look at Din, even though, again, what Tosis means is up for debate, he says, whether we accept that, whether we accept Tosis, what Tosis means is not so clear. However, he says, the halacha is correct that the girls are allowed to charge for signing away their share of their inheritance. Certainly here, he says, a neighbor who is being asked to sign away his uh, sign away his right to object to the his his objection his right to bar such a project is absolutely entitled to decline to sign unless he's compensated. That is that 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 that's a kolshkin he says from the case of the Yerusha, perhaps because here there's a real question of danger as well as the other Rav said. So this is what the Shalomeshiv says. He he also accepts the ruling of Rebichil Basan, not like the Varit. And he says, Kolshkin, in his case, he applies it to his case of a, of a neighbor signing away his right to object to a facility that requires a variance being built next door. As we said, many postkim, many postkim discusses back and forth. There are many, many other postkim for or against whether the girls do or don't have the right to charge for their signature. Again, the, 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 reason, the, the argument of those who say no is they say it's a simple question of Ashav Saveda. I can't extort money from you from returning your lost property. It's a question of Zenan of Zelochaser, as the Shalom Eshiv's correspondent said, assuming I have nothing to lose by signing the signature. The property's not mine anyway. The signature doesn't cost me anything. I'll buy you a free pen if you want, uh, so you can do it. 
So, you know, what am I losing? I get to use, I, the son, get to use property which is rightfully mine. You, the daughter, are not losing anything because the property doesn't belong to you anyway. So, why isn't it So, first of all, as we've discussed in the past, there is a major machlokis whether we actually force people to take actions on their own initiative based on Zenav Zelachasir. Do we really force people to do that? But even if we do, there are some posts who try to argue that signing any legal document, uh, the Gemara has a svara, People just don't want their names on documents. The more your name is floating around, you can get in trouble. Who knows what will happen to you? Not sure how realistic a concern that is in the modern context. Our names are on so many papers uh, anyway, so many, and they've been hacked so many times and sent to who knows where around the world. I'm not sure why signing one more legal release is really going to have, have, the, have the realistic possibility for any deleterious effect on you. I'll call upon him. Some posts can actually try to argue that there is some kind of real downside in signing the document. If we assume not, then, then as we've seen, this is the argument. Some say, my signature is mine. If you want it, you have to pay me for it. I, I have the right to charge you for my signature. Other posts can say, the Torah doesn't work like that. The Torah has a concept of a Shoah You're mechuyiv to cooperate with somebody else as a mitzvah to help him, even though your time is yours. The Torah, yours is not the last word on the subject. The, the Torah sometimes expects you to do things when you're not giving up your own property, give up your time, give up, uh, to, and, or, and, and to signature as well, even though, yes, it's your signature, if you can help a fellow Jew and there's no downside, then you have to do it, some post can say, because there's, because there's uh, just, it's true that, uh, as we've discussed before, as, as my father showed me, Professor Nachum Rakover says, they asked him, how would you, he's an expert on Mishpat Ivri, on comparative law, comparing halacha with secular law, What's the difference, they asked him, how, how would you, what is the key difference between Jewish law and uh, general law, secular law? He says the difference is with Nimishur Sadin and Midas Stone. The law, is, the law says this is the law. My property is my property. He talks about a case of somebody needed to get a delivery, a piano, and uh, it was hard to get through the front door. The most effective way would have been to take it through his neighbor's property. So the neighbor said no. So they took him to a basin, and he won. And the basin said, Kofin Almidas Dome, give it to him. Why do you care? So Rockover says he told this to a lawyer. The lawyer was baffled, like, what do you mean? It's his property. How could you force him to let him take a piano through it? Halakha doesn't work like that. Halakha sometimes says, Kofin Almidas Dome. Again, halakha is not so simple. Whether we actually force people to let other people use their property is not so simple that we say Kofin Almidas Dome. But halakha certainly does have an ethic beyond the simple question of Midas Dome. Shali, shali, v'shalach, shalach. Halakha does sometimes expect you to say, if I can help another Jew and I'm not t- losing anything to which I'm really entitled, I'm a chayiv to do it. So that's why some poskim said, since the property al pialacha, it's the virtually unanimous consensus, does not belong to the girls, it belongs to the boys, they would not have the right to withhold their signature, because by signing they can help the true owners of the property, their brothers, so they have no right to charge for this help. Other poskim say no. Other poskim say that if the brothers need them, if it's their signature, they can withhold it. Again, why that's not Midas Dome is a good question. But uh, some, some posts can say they have the right to say no. They have the right to say, if you want our signature, you will have to pass for it.